0: production This is from Zero Conversations with Business Founders. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of luxuryescapes.com, financial journalist, author, and angel investor. With my best mate from school, we co-founded Luxury Escapes, and the business has grown to turn over almost a billion dollars annually. In this episode, you ask me the questions in what we call Ask Adam anything. If you're a budding entrepreneur, established founder, or business professional, and want to ask us a question, please send a voice recording to info at fromzeropodcast.com, and we'd love to get you on the show. Now, on to our first question. Hey Adam, it's Matt here from Long Beach, Uh, loving the show. I'd just like to know, what do you think the Australian tech ecosystem could do to produce more unicorns like Atlassian and Canva? we tended to, to sort of lump Atlassian and Canva together, but they are two very different stories. Uh, so I think to understand why Australia hasn't created more Atlassians and Canvas, to sort of understanding, understand, I guess the environment when Atlassian and Canva got created. So Atlassian was way back in 2003. I think Scott and Mike started, they were uh, students together along with Nikki Skivek actually, who found a Blackbird and who interviewed for the show. Now students at university of technology in Sydney, and they started Atlassian, uh, I think, while they were still in the last year of, of university. Uh, and they they used credit cards to fund the business. And they were able to get incredible traction really quickly. Uh, and hence, they were able to bootstrap the business. And they had what's, what was known as product-led growth. And product-led growth is where the product itself is so popular and so good. And their, their product was a product called Jira, which was a way for tech staff to effectively create a, almost a uh, jobs board, you know, a, a job board of, of what they're working on. So the tech and the product and the engineers and the designers would all, all use Jira together to work out, well, oh, I'm, I'm building this product for the business. And this is, this is where we're at with it. And they created this Jira business and, and tech, um, developers and engineers loved it so much. They just started signing up for this business. And that was why at last was we able to grow so quickly without ever having to raise capital. Canva was a little bit different, uh, Bell and Cliff were such great uh, business people. They were able to grow the business really well and iterate and pivot the product. And they created what essentially was a, a really easy-to-use Adobe Illustrator slash Photoshop. So they built this incredible product. Again, it was another example of, of really great product-led growth. They were able to grow that business. They, they did raise capital from a number of people, uh, from a number of really big VCs. Blackbird famously came in their, their first round and effectively have... have be able to generate billions of dollars of returns. So they did raise capital, but what both Atlassian and Canva did was create really incredible products and products that scale globally. So how can Australia create more uh, unicorns or decacorns like Canberra Atlassian? Well, the, what everybody defaults to is we need more venture capital. We need lots of more venture capital and that'll create an ecosystem. And when there's lots and lots of capital, like they have in Silicon Valley and like they have in Israel, we'll have so much money that we can grow through that. But I think what we saw and what SoftBank showed is that Capital doesn't create a competitive advantage. And what creates these incredible businesses is just great products and great leaders. What you look for initially, and we've talked about this before on, on Ask Adam Anything, is, is what makes a great founder is someone who's really willing to be really gritty and pivot quickly and really understand customers. And that's what both the Atlassian and Canva founders were able to do. They oscillated their products or created new products. Canva especially pivoted multiple times, pivoted from that photo book product to a very different product in, in what they ended up. And it was that ability to pivot so quickly and so well and create a product that people love is what created so much value for for shareholders and for the founders. so how to create more atlassians and canvas, have lots of really great founders, encourage really good people to become founders, not to become lawyers and bankers and consultants, which is which is another default path and it certainly was the default path 20 years ago, but to encourage some really great people to to do things, create businesses, and to get lots of diversity. Mel's obviously one of the great famous female founders globally, and there just aren't enough female founders. There aren't enough diverse founders. There's still so many founders that are white males who went to university who are 30 years old. That, That was the classic Eileen Lee unicorn back in 2011, and it still unfortunately is very much the prototype founder. So we need more diversity. We need lots more people trying business and trying things. Capital is helpful, but it's certainly not the only thing. And Canberra and Atlassian showed that capital was only one element. And what you really need is incredible founders with incredible ideas. Hey, Adam, this is Carla from Melbourne. Loving the show. I assume you do pre-seed and seed investing. I was just wondering, how do you assess founders when they have no revenue or product to invest in? Thank you. Thank you, Carla, for Melbourne. We get a, a few calls from Melbourne, possibly because that's where I live. Uh, and I think our show is most popular in Melbourne. So thank you so much, Carla, for the fantastic question. I think before we answer the specific question, let's talk about, so you asked about pre-seed and seed. So why don't we talk about first what is pre-seed and seed? Because some listeners may, may not have heard of that. So there's lots of jargon that now surrounds startups and we just assume everybody knows it, but often a lot of people don't. So- there's essentially different types of capital rounds, pre-seed, seed, post-seed, and you have what's called a series A, a series B, a series C ongoing. I think there's some companies, Secret Escapes, which is a competitor of, of luxury Escapes, up to about a series G. So there's a number of different funding rounds you can get in the olden days. Uh, businesses would sort of get to a series B, maybe a C, and then they tend to, to float or list on the stock exchange. But what happens these days is businesses stay private for a lot longer. So if you get to a series sort of F or G, that's sort of eight or nine or 10 funding rounds in. And and amazing that actually still happens. Although at that point, you're sort of wondering if a business hasn't become profitable after 10 funding rounds, that should be a concern for investors. But let's go back to the start. So pre-seed and seed. So pre-seed is what happens generally before you've got a real product and often before you've got much of a business. So what a pre-seed round generally is, is it's usually a family and friends round or what you call a credit card round. So it's founders knocking on on the, the parents or close friends or aunties and uncles or friends they know uh, who will give them often a little bit of money. could be $50,000 or $100,000 just to get, almost to get a prototype up and going. And that allows you to, to work towards what's called product market fit. So another type of pre-seed round, could be uh, an incubator around. So you may have heard of incubators like Y Combinator, which is the great incubator based out of uh, San Francisco. In Australia, the equivalent is StartMate. And there's also Antler, which is almost well, an international equivalent, which is a little bit different. I'm a mentor at StartMate and help out with Antler as well. So both both those organizations are really excellent. And Nikki Scavec, again, who we talked about before, uh, was the founder of StartMate, who was on the show, I think, in series two, which is a great episode. So, pre seed is essentially before you've got certainly before you've got product market fit, usually before you've got revenue is where you raise a little bit of money. Uh, When you get to a seed round, you've generally got some sort of business. You may have a product, you may not have revenue yet. Sometimes you do, but a seed round is often a hundred thousand dollars, could be up to $500,000. Some seed rounds, we've seen some seed rounds be as much as 10 or $20 million, which is really unusual. A good friend of mine called Ito Leffler uh, created a business called Brandless and that received a a $50 million dollar seed funding round. I think Google Ventures took most of that. That was a San Francisco-based company. $50 million seed rounds are really unusual. Uh, You may have also heard of Adam Newman, who famously created WeWork, which uh, imploded in one of the greatest startup fiascos in history. He's just raised a $350 million seed round funded by Andreessen Horowitz, probably one of the best regarded venture capitalists in the world to create essentially a bizarre property management startup. So chances are, that not only is that the largest seed round in history, probably going to be the worst seed round in history, but that'll be a, a topic for another episode. The question from Carla is, when you're investing in pre-seed and seed, how do you, uh, how do you look at companies that generally don't have revenue? So I think that answering your question, Carla, is I, I tend not to be a big seed investor. My preferred timing is probably a series A or series B. I'm what's called an angel investor. So it's sort of different levels. So you've got angel investors, can, angel investors can actually invest across the spectrum, VCs will typically invest in a seed or a series A or a series B. Generally pre-seed is the the realm of incubator and family and friends. I tend to not do that. What happens with incubators is they invest in lots and lots of pre-seed companies. Problem with pre-seed investing is it's really hard to know how successful a company will be because it's so early stage and they've got really no product market fit. So what you do look for, and I've done a couple of pre-seed investments, what really you are looking for is less about the idea because If somebody comes with an idea that sounds incredible, there really is no real life use case yet. So what you're looking for is how good is the founder? And you're looking, is this founder going to be able to be really gritty? Are they going to be able to pivot the business once, twice, or three times? Are they super smart? Are they willing to work really hard? And will they be able to raise money and tell a really convincing narrative to investors to be able to fund the business? The problem is with, this is the reason why I like series A and series B is once you get to series A, you can tell what's called the unit economics of the business. And the key unit economics in a business is how much does it cost to acquire a new user and what's the lifetime value or what's the margin that user provides the first time. So I'll I'll use a business that's very close to my heart, Luxury Escape. So we might spend $200 acquiring a user, a a new purchaser. So that's somebody who comes to our site and buys a holiday. And that might cost a couple hundred bucks. And we do that via social media or via broadcast. Could be via radio, could be via podcast ads could be via Facebook or or Google. So we we have a rough idea of how much it costs to acquire a user and then we know how much that user spends on their first purchase and you can sort of approximate that. And we also know how many times a user will purchase in the future. That gets us a lifetime value. The problem with the pre-series A business is you just have no idea what it costs to acquire a customer and then you have no idea how much that customer will spend with the business and certainly have no idea of the lifetime value of that customer. So it's really hard to understand how successful the business will be before you've got those really key unit economics. So in a sense, what you're doing, you're effectively betting on a gut feel. You're betting on how good these founder or co-founding team is and will the, the co-founding team or the founding team be able to adjust and pivot many times down the track? And the problem with pre-seed and seed investing is you often get it wrong. So you need to do often 20, 30, 50, 100 of this sort of seed or pre-seed investments in your portfolio because often only sort of one in 100 will succeed. And the stats are, stats are really horrible for, for venture. So I think only one in 100 companies is even able to raise venture capital, which is, shows how hard it is for, for startups. But once you get to that level, it does become a lot easier. And the, and the longer you run the business, the easier it becomes. So really good question. In a sense, there's no simple answer. Uh, pre-seed investing is more art than science, I think. And it's really about trying to pick those really great founders. After that question, I was just chatting to my fantastic producer, Ed, who had his own question following up. So Ed, over to you. Yeah. So you mentioned the 99 out of 100 businesses that are failing or aren't able to get funding. That number seems really high. Is there a reason why it's like that? And was it always that way? Let me just to clarify. So what what the data shows is 100 businesses get venture capital funding. So in a sense, 100 succeed and 99 don't simply because they don't get funded to go to the next round. Although the odd one or two probably bootstraps on top of that. The the, the question is, well, a 99 business is really that bad? Uh, And I think the answer to that is is no. I think the problem we have is in the old days before you had venture capital and and when you started a business in the 1950s, what you do is you go to a bank and get bank debt. And these days, virtually no startups get bank debt. So you're funded either by either bootstraps so you're funded by revenues of the business and profits of the business. But for many businesses, many startup type businesses, they just simply can't boot, if you bootstrap. If you're running a SaaS business or a marketplace, you can't bootstrap. we were able to bootstrap luxury escapes because we're an e-commerce business, which is one of the few businesses capable of bootstrapping. So I guess the, the, the question is, well, only 99, uh, one out of a hundred businesses get funding. No, no, don't. Why are so many businesses not getting funding? And it's simply a supply demand imbalance at venture capital level in Australia. So you've only got You've probably got five or six, what you call top tier venture capitalists in Australia, the likes of Blackbird, uh, likes of Airtree, the likes of Squarepeg. You've got some really, really good, uh, what we call sort of boutique-y type of uh, venture capitalists, so like likes of Rampersand or uh, Our Innovation Fund. These are incredible funds, have a fantastic rate of success. They tend to only raise 50 to $100 million funds. So what you're looking at is is that the fun- most funds will only invest in probably, in Australia, probably five to 10 investors each year. That's a function of two things. One is simply capital. In the US, there's more venture capitalists and they've got a bigger pool of funding from institutions. And a lot of venture capitalists get money out of university endowments. So Harvard's got, a, I think, a $50 billion endowment. I think Yale's got the same. They, they really leverage off endowments. In Australia, we don't, we don't have that. So We've got a bit of institutional money, the likes of Host Plus, for example, uh, Aussie Super. They either do direct investments themselves, they also go through VCs. There isn't the university money. Uh, so you've got the likes of Square Peg and, and Blackbird, Airtree tend to get money for those institutions. And you've got those really good boutique funds. They tend to get family office money. So there's limited funds there. So one problem is limited number of funds. So even if VCs wanted to invest more, they just don't have the money. They want to keep powder dry for follow-on funding. Second issue is venture capitalists generally want to have a board seat. So you can only have so many venture capitalists in a fund size so big. So venture capitalists are, are limited by funding, which limits the number of boards each they have. So there's sort of two limitations on Australian venture capitalists and overseas VCs, so be it UC, US VCs, generally have so many companies in their own country, they just don't have the dry powder to invest in Australia. So Australian startups, are, there's just a massive supply imbalance. There's a lot more great startups in Australia than there is funding for them. So that's the problem that Australia has. It'd be great to get more funding in the sector. Uh, and that is happening with the great returns. So venture capital returns have been just extraordinary. The venture capitals I've invested in, be it and be it Aura, be it RightClip, which is another fantastic VC, tend to be averaging 20%. What's called it IRR, internal rates of return, which is 10x what you get in a bank. So incredible returns. The problem is most people either don't know about venture capitalists or don't know how to invest in a venture capitalist. So number of problems around the sector. It is getting better. If you look compared to 2010, there was sort of just starfish, which is now longer around. So we've seen this incredible renaissance of venture or this birth of venture capital in Australia. We probably are 15 years behind the, or 20 years behind the US and 10 years behind Europe. So we're getting there, just not quite there yet. How do you actually invest in a VC? You kind of got to know them. So generally for the first problem is there's a minimum of 250,000 generally. So it's sophist- what's called sophisticated investors only. There's a lot of controversy around what is it, who is a sophisticated investor, but essentially you've got to, have a certain amount of asset, so it's it's actually not as sophisticated investor. It's a wealthy investor, regardless of how smart or good an investor you are. And if you if you are a sophisticated investor, you sort of just need to know the, the venture capitalists, if you're willing to rest two fifty plus, most VCs will happily take your money. They just you don't know them, and they don't know you. So part of the hardest part of venture capital, and same as the hardest part of private equity, isn't the investing part. It's the raising the fund, especially the first fund. And once you raise your first fund and generate a return, generally that it's it's pretty smooth sailing, but the challenge for, in, for venture capitalists in Australia is getting access to capital. And ironically, the challenge for capital is getting access to VC. So it's, it's what we call an inefficient market. So as a result of this inefficient market, the, the victims are, are startup founders who, who should be getting funded, but aren't. And that's clearly a, a problem that, that Silicon Valley doesn't have anywhere to this extent. And Israel doesn't have, even Europe doesn't have. You mentioned the larger VCs like SquarePeg. Are they also taking that minimum 250K investment? That's a good question. I think the big VCs will probably still take smaller checks, maybe not 250, maybe a million dollar check. I think if you look at some of the funds that, I think Blackbird and SquarePeg both raised $250 million funds in the last year. So that's significant funds. A lot of that money comes from instos. Certainly when SquarePeg started, or both when both Blackbird and SquarePeg started, they took 250K checks. It's just as the funds have increased... The only way to get that really big fund size, that, this is a PE, private equity style fund. The only way to get to that kind of size is by taking INSTO money because uh, INSTOs can write a $50 or $100 million check and, and make that. Institution is uh, generally a superannuation fund in Australia. So Hester's a big one. Obviously, Super is the biggest. So it's, it's those big superannuation funds that tend to be the Australian institutional money. Uh, they put a lot of money into private equity, which is the difference between private equity. I should talking about the difference between private equity and venture capital. The difference between private equity and venture capital is... Private equity firms generally invest in pretty much only invest in profitable businesses. There's the odd exception, but almost only have to be profitable. Usually you're making $10 million in EBITDA a year for private equity to invest in you. And they tend to have a five to seven year window of of investment, a bit bit longer. Venture capital is a much earlier stage. Venture capital tend to invest, not always, but usually in non-profitable businesses and have a shorter three to five year window. So it's a slight difference. Private equity generally invests bigger funds, usually billion often a billion plus or $500 million plus. It's virtually all institutional money. VCs have a combination, but the big VCs are becoming much more and more like private equity firms. You look at Square Peg, uh, who Paul Bassett runs, and Paul was on the show uh, last year, who's an incredible guy. Uh, They got a lot of money out of, I think, Hester in their last round, and they invest in a a lot of companies outside Australia and later stage, a series B, series C. So there is just that big gap in Australia that hasn't been filled yet. Until we have more money flowing into venture capital, there will be that difficulty for investee companies, so for founders in getting that cash. So it's certainly improved a lot. The angel community has improved a lot. The VC and community to improve, and private equity is also looking downstream. So I've, I've had conversations with private equity firms who historically we're only investing in profitable companies, need to be making more than 10, often $15 million EBITDA a year. They're looking at sort of unprofitable or, or barely profitable business as well, which is a really positive sign. So uh, the long shot is things are looking up. It's looking a lot better, but we've got a lot of work to do here still. And that's it for this edition of Ask Adam Anything. Thanks so much for your questions. If you'd like to submit a question, please send a voice recording to info at fromzeropodcast.com. If you're a founder, young professional, or just someone interested in the world of business, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Our producer is Ed Gooden. Our audio producer is Darcy Thompson. And this has been From Zero Podcast with me, Adam Schwab.